Hey, Dr. Bill here for another Meet the Mentor. Now, Paul actually came and spoke at LEAP 2023. So this is going to be a little bit different take on the, the motivational speech that he gave us. But we're super excited. We got our new brochures. LEAP 2024 will be July 21st to the 27th. First time ever, it kills me to say it, but we're going to USC. Um, you know what? It was hard. <laughs> it was hard. But, but once my daughter went, I started to embrace the uh, Trojan culture. And I have to say, they treated me better as a parent than I ever expected. Like, they treated me like I went there. I think they wanted my money. But it was okay. And um, we will be at USC and... This is going to be an epic, epic leap. We've already had firm commitments from Sir Anthony Hopkins, who has two feature films launching this year. He plays Sigmund Freud in Sigmund Freud, and also he plays the English gentleman who saved 669 Jewish kids that were living in Czechoslovakia and would have gone to the gas chambers. Mm. Um, together, from saving those kids, over 5,000 people paid tribute to uh, this man. So um, Anthony Hopkins will pay him. Uh, we also have Jason Alexander, who is committed. Amy Adams, if she's free, will come. Uh, Shay Mitchell, if she's free, will come. So we should have a great lineup. And uh, we're excited about that. So let me tell you about Paul Epstein. He spent nearly 15 years as a professional sports executive for multiple NFL and NBA teams, where he broke every premium revenue metric in Super Bowl history. He also opened a billion-dollar stadium and founded the San Francisco 49ers Team uh, Talent Academy, where he became known as the Y Coach. As an award-winning keynote speaker named one of Success Magazine's top thought leaders that gets results, Paul's impact continues offstage providing leadership development and culture transformation programs for companies and teams, including Amazon, Disney, Johnson & Johnson, NASA, the Los Angeles Lakers, and the Dallas Cowboys. You're everywhere. And his work has been featured on ESPN, NBC, Fox Business, and USA Today. He's also a best-selling author of The Power of Playing Offense. His second new book, Better Decisions Faster, is available on Amazon. Paul, thank you Thanks. so much for being here. Fired up, Dr. Bill. So you've had quite an illustrious career. How did it all start? How it all started? Well, you mentioned, speaking of Leap next year, so I'm a proud Trojan, so you might have seen this in the camera. Uh, and when we say Trojan family, uh, I'll go back. This is decades ago. I didn't know that you could ever work in an area of passion. I just thought maybe there's a gift or a skill or a talent. And for me, as a young kid, and I'll, I'll watch my language here, but my uh, parents and my family always told me, this kid will not shut up and he will not stop talking. So he must be on one of two paths. He's either gonna be a trial attorney or a salesman, <laughs> one of the two. Well, it turns out I got into the world of sales and that's why I went to USC, was business school and sales and marketing were the concentration. Ironically enough, fast forward, I married an attorney. So I guess both things actually came true in some way. But I didn't know that you could combine a passion with a day job. And then it was a guy by the name of Will Farrell. He delivered the commencement speech when I graduated USC. And that was literally the lasting imprint 
that he left with me. And Let me guess what he said. If you love what you do, it's not work. <laughs> Very much so. And he made it real. Like he didn't describe Hollywood or entertainment as this out of reach thing. He just described it in a very accessible way of having a vision, having a passion, and putting in the work. And I think that's the key because, you know, I, I speak a lot. You mentioned being the Y coach of the 49ers, and then I'll get back to the beginning of the journey. But why is connected to purpose? And I often get approached. One of the number one questions I'm always asked is, how do I find my purpose? How do I discover my purpose? And I think that's the wrong place to start because often, A, it's feels out of reach, and sometimes it's like a distant North Star, and most of us don't know what to do with a North Star to apply it on Monday morning. We struggle to the granular level of a behavior, a decision, or an action. And so if purpose might be the end game, and for everyone listening in, I do believe that having a more purposeful life is truly what fuels us and energizes us, but I don't start at purpose. I start with curiosity. And then curiosity, when we scratch that itch often enough, you tend to find some passions in there. And then from that, purpose. So it's curiosity, then passion, then purpose. When I was at USC, I always had a passion for sports. I never knew that you could make a day job out of it, but I was curious. And so while I graduated and came out in the sales ranks, as they say, you often hear success leaves clues. I believe if you zoom out, Life leaves clues. We just need to be aware and open to them. So I'm a year removed from school, and Mel Kuyper, who even if you're not a sports fan, he's an NFL college draft guru. He starts studying kids in junior high and projects how well they're gonna do to high school, to college, right. and beyond. Typical high energy, raw, raw type of guy. I'm driving in my sporty Dodge Caravan in some outside territory sales job a year out of school, and Mel comes on the ESPN infomercial and says, have you ever wanted a dream in sports? Have you ever wanted to work for the NFL, NBA, MLB? Yes, 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 and I'm speeding down the highway. And that's oh. what you wanted to do. I literally- But wait, but what were you doing? Like straight out of school, what were you doing? Straight out of school, I was working for a Fortune 10 organization as an outside territory sales manager. And loving it. I loved selling. <laughs> right, what I were you selling? I didn't love the product. Pretty controversial. I was working for Philip Morris. Okay. I worked for the parent company of Marlboro. Not a smoker, no judgment, all that. But I never loved the product, but I learned something really cool at Philip Morris. Great inside culture. I was treated like gold. And so I love the camaraderie, I love the connection. I started as a summer sales intern in my sophomore year at SC. And then that turned into being a recruiting ambassador. And I did that once I was out of school, knowing that this might not be my forever thing, but I learned a whole lot about the people side of business. Ironically enough, decades later, that's what I speak about all over the globe, is the people side of business, the culture and the yeah. leadership and all of that. Well, the thing is, once you learn how to sell, any business you do is sales. Yes. I, look, this is the first time I've ever done a meet the mentor in, in, in my, my work clothes. I'm a dentist, but you know what I do? I sell dentistry. Mm. You know what I mean? It, it isn't like I just, drill teeth. 
you know, I sell dentistry. That's what makes a dental practice successful. So I don't care if you're a doctor, a lawyer, whatever you are, you're selling something. And learning sales is critical to anything you want to do. I don't care if you're a, a, a waiter. In, yeah. in a restaurant, you make money by not only selling the, the food, but then by upselling to alcohol and drinks and things like that that make the restaurant money. Well, life is a game of sales and it starts by selling yourself. I think from the time we're young and you could make a funny analogy about dating and just say like, what are we doing? We're right. trying to sell and market ourselves right, right, right. to the other person. Right. Um, I don't care if we're trying to convince our best friend to go to restaurant A versus B. That's a sell. And it doesn't always have to be this kind of fork in the road. I think it's, um, it's just a game of confidence. It's a game of belief. It's a game of resilience. You know what I think it is really? It's being able to recognize value mm -hmm. and giving that the right presentation. You know, I mean, even uh, let's go to a restaurant, you know, do you want dessert? Well, not really, but we have, you know, and if you give somebody value in something, they're going to buy, you know, I mean, even let's start with dentistry. I mean, you know, it's not just about having pretty teeth. They have to be functional. They have mm -hmm. to be healthy. They have to, you're going to have a better life. You're going to have a healthier life. You're going to enjoy food more. You're going to look better. I mean, all these things play mm -hmm. into it. So anyhow, we got sales down and then you hear this guy who kind of plants the seed and you've always loved sports. So what was your kind of entree into this? Yeah. So he, the call to action was call 1-800-SMWW-NOW. And okay. I made the call to Sports Management Worldwide. It was an eight-week online course, and there were no promises other than if the instructors and the professors take a liking to you, they'll introduce you to their network. Okay. And so I just took the plunge. And mind you, this is a great Fortune 10 opportunity that I'm currently at. Six figures at goal. I get through the eight-week online program, and they say, where do you want to work? I'm a proud born and raised Angelino. I want to be in L.A., what are your favorite sports? Football and basketball. Okay, basketball. We know the folks at Staples Center. And this was in the era where Kobe and Shaq were winning championships. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to be hanging out with Jack Nicholson and the Laker girls. And Kobe and Shaq are going to be right down the hall. Well, I took the plunge. And I never got to meet Jack. Kobe and Shaq were in the building, but they were on the other side of the hallway. Because I never worked for the Lakers. They introduced me to the other team known as the redheaded stepchild of the building. I was an entry-level salesman for the LA Clippers. A year before I started, ESPN said, you're the worst brand in sports. My second week on the job, you cannot even make this up. Front cover of Sports Illustrated, worst franchise in sports history. And to add insult to injury, I left the six-figure job to make seven dollars an hour. Nice. All of that. So the message here, and if I was mentoring my younger self on that decision-making process, I never really looked at the downside or the risk. I never thought about starting over. I never thought about what I was leaving. I solely focused on what I was running toward, and I was willing to deal with the trade-offs. I was very aware of it, and also this was a little bit of a bold move but I remember at the time I was really young I was still living at home no rent all good 
And at $7 an hour, no benefits, four-hour shift, you have to earn your way to an eight-hour shift, I did something even crazier. I moved out, downtown LA high-rise. At the time, it was a $2,000 a month. I mean, like, at 3% commission, you got to sell a lot of Clipper tickets to make that much. And I did it. I did it because I wanted, I don't know if pressure is the right word, but I just wanted to feel like I had skin in the game. I had to feel like I had to perform. I had to feel like I had to produce. There was just this internal piece of me that I didn't want to be comfortable because I felt like everything in my life up to that point was very comfortable. I have to tell you a funny story that relates to this because I can totally relate. In 1987, um, I literally had just started my dental practice in this building. And I, you know, I wasn't well off at all. But I saw this amazing sports club being built on Sepulveda. It wasn't built yet. They just had a trailer and a picture and, you know, some tagline how this was going to be like, you know, the most exclusive yachty, da, 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 da club in LA. And I couldn't afford it, but I made myself afford it. And Mm -hmm. honestly, that was the smartest business decision I ever made in my life. And I'll tell you why. Because joining Sports Club LA, first of all, it filled my practice with really great patients who appreciated and could afford good cosmetic dentistry. But more importantly, I met my best friend and business partner, Robert Heyman there, Mm. who started Discus Dental with me. And had it not been for Discus, my whole life would be different. I mean, we grew that company from zero to $1.3 billion in sales before Mm. selling it. And had I not pushed myself to join Sports Club LA, Mm. that would have never happened. And so many other things in my life would have never happened. Isn't it crazy how you can always, to use a sports metaphor, we can always be a Monday morning quarterback and say, well, this is what we should have done on Sunday and run that play. And, but that's too easy. That's 2020 hindsight. Right. But when you reverse engineer, and if A hadn't happened, then B doesn't happen, then C doesn't happen. But here's the, there's a couple of insights to unpack here. One is, as I now fast forward and I can reflect back and say 15 years in the NFL and NBA and all the way to the C-suite for the San Francisco 49ers, and I wrote a best-selling book, Power of Playing Offense, and people ask me, what do people that play offense do that defensive people don't? And one of them is they are highly comfortable with imperfect action. Imperfect action. They don't need to be guaranteed a result or an outcome. They're going to swing the bat. A lot of people only swing the bat when they know they're going to hit the ball. All right. They just swing. They're very decisive. And if, if they don't succeed as the world would define success, well, then they learn, they grow, they iterate, they evolve, they adapt. All these things that we know are very valuable traits. So that's one piece of it. But even looking back, a couple of things that happened in those early days of the Clippers. One is I started in a, it felt like a fraternity, almost like a pledge class, if you will. It was like 12 of us. I was the mm. only one to survive over two months on the job. Because, again, the financial sacrifice, but also it was so freaking hard to sell that product at that time. And so most people, you're rejected all day. You're just banging the phones 150, 200 times. And no after no after no. And I'll clean up the language. like, But they're saying much worse things than that. And it just built this callous 
that I think is armor for the rest of your career because here's what I took from that. Yeah, sure. Would I have wanted to work for the Lakers before I knew I would land at the Clippers? Of course, because that's the sex appeal and that's the allure. Right. But what happens is when you work for a market leader, like if you're in the beverage industry and your first job is for Coca-Cola, I feel like you may not accelerate or grow as quickly because the scrappiness and the grit and the creativity may not have to be there. You know, when I was at the Niners, we were not very good in the years I was there. Now we're pretty good. The Warriors in the basketball side were awesome. And so I used to joke with my buddies at the Warriors. I said, oh, that's cool. You guys pick up incoming calls. We got to go hunt. And right. so there's a piece of that hunter's mentality at a young, I'm happy 2020 hindsight that I didn't start with the Lakers, that I started with the Clippers, because I think if you're trying to grow a career, you want to work for the underdog. And it's okay to work for the underdog and you should embrace it instead of, oh, but my buddy works across the street at the blue chip company. Cool. But I would argue the more valuable long-term insights may get accelerated when you work for the underdog. I agree 100%. And I think that thinking outside the box is integral. You know, it's funny, when we started Discus, we didn't want order takers. Mm -hmm. Like when you called to place an order mm -hmm. and you took an order, we fired you. Hmm. We wanted salespeople. When somebody called to place an order for whitening product, we wanted our sales reps to say, hey, I'll take your order, but I noticed you haven't ordered impression material or trays or this or that. And you know, so they actually got paid minimum for taking orders, but they made a lot of money on upselling. There you go. You know? And so, yeah, you're right. If you walk into, uh, you know, Coca-Cola, you just keep doing what you the company the does, right? And they probably aren't real open to change. But when you're on the underdog, that's the fun thing because you get to really be scrappy and get to create and, and you can actually measure progress. You know, yeah. I mean, if you're up here at Coke and you go up that much, one thing, if you're down here with the 49ers or the Clippers and in a year you're here and in two years you're here and three years you're there, that's really fun. Oh, yeah. I think my first four promotions, so from entry-level sales, mid-level sales, senior-level sales, then sales manager, then director of sales, that all happened in six years. And I was always selling the underdog or managing or leading the team of the underdog Here's a cool thing though, Dr. Bill, and I'm sure the, the, your story actually connects with this really well too, is so we know there's a cliche out there, but a lot of cliches are cliches because they're true. We always hear control the controllables. And that's something that some of us learn and understand and maybe apply earlier than others, but nobody would argue that people that can control the controllables from their mindset, their energy, their attitude, because the world is crazy, the world is hard, it's only getting faster, it's only getting more complex. Life's not easy. Business is not easy. Growing a career is not easy. And there were a couple of controllables that helped me sell the underdog. And I've never left these simple controllables. The three were work ethic, positivity, and coachability. I locked in on those three things, knowing that if I can outwork the room, if I can out-attitude the room, let them be negative because it's hard to sell. People are gonna tell you to, you know what, off. And like, okay, those are words, 
but you have a choice on how you react from an attitude perspective. And then coachability. Well, if I didn't make a sale today, but I'm hungry to make a sale tomorrow, then I got to get better, even if it's 1% better, so I'm going to be coachable. And those same principles of work ethic, positivity, coachability were the same things that when I became a sales manager, my first leadership role in the sports industry, I created a constitution. It was a six to nine month program. You came in, you made a ton of calls. My job was to hire the best talent. And I, there was a constitution. I said, in six to nine months, so if I hired you on January 1st, from July 1 to end of September, in that window of time, I will take care of not only this next step in your career, I will take care of you for life if you give me those three things. And people would come back to me like, well, no, Paul, this is a results job. This is about widgets sold, tickets right. sold. And I said, yeah, but my job is to hire the talent. I hire the skill. They need to show up with the will and the will was work ethic, positivity, coachability. I said, if you give me those three things, even if this doesn't work out, it's not the industry for you or you hate sales or whatever it is, I've got your back. And to this day, I have lifelong friendships and business colleagues and acquaintances and clients that came from those sales rooms, whether they succeeded at that job or not, because they brought their lunch pail with those three things. That's awesome. Let, let's kind of start at the beginning and kind of go through your career. So, yeah. you know, you, you finish USC, you know, you learned marketing at USC. Mm -hmm. Your first job was sales. From that, you took this, this was it an eight-week program? It was, yeah. An eight-week program, and then you went right into working at the Clippers. And then just kind of give us the evolution of how you got to you know, the height of your career through that. Sure. So the same program that I eventually managed, that six to nine month sales, they call it inside sales, which basically means you're making a lot of phone calls. You're not, to, to, very, to make the revenue streams of sports very simple, you're either selling to consumers or businesses. You're selling to individuals or companies. What, so, what are you selling? Tickets primary at an entry level, you're right. selling tickets. So, so you're calling a, different companies and trying to get tickets for their employees or what? That's probably the next level up. That's like what the senior sales folks did. What we do at the entry level is if Dr. Bill came to one game, I had to call Dr. Bill to convince him to do a gotcha. season ticket. So it was an upsell into a larger plan versus it. buying it all a card okay. like you did originally. On so TV you Master. started off just selling to individuals. Individual upsells to just gain a greater commitment, come out more often. And right. really cool perspective there is if people don't want what you're selling, then you need to figure out what's important to them in the sense of, so if you don't love the Clippers, what do you love? Love basketball. Why do you love basketball? Well, because me and my dad used to throw uh, the, the, the ball around in the driveway and da 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 da. Oh, cool. So who are your favorite teams if it's not the, and then boom, 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 boom. Who are your favorite players? And then I reverse engineered it and basically the science of it all was, so you love basketball. It takes you back to your childhood. You now have three kids of your own. You're looking for something to do in your spare time with them. You want to energize them after school and you, and then boom, all of a sudden the Clippers gave them access to all these wonderful benefits, but it took a 30 minute phone call and maybe a one hour face-to-face gotcha. -face meeting to do it. So that was kind of the process, but a lot of psychology of get to know what the other person cares about, and that's the hole you sell through versus 
do you want my product? Because the answer there was heck no. Yeah, <laughs> so, all right. So it was an entry level sales, then you get promoted and now you're getting into the business to business. Group sales. Now it's group sales, right. luxury suites, club seats. So this is more, do you want to entertain your clients here? Right. And, and again, you, you do really well at that stage. And this was an interesting pivot point because there's a fork in the road at this stage of a career that everybody listening to this, a lot of folks may face. Do I want to continue in this player type role? Like I am a producer at whatever it is that I do. I'm right. an individual contributor. Or do I want to lead the team? The challenge is, I think in school, at least the way I understood it was, the default setting is if you sell a lot of widgets or you do really well at whatever you do, you should supervise that position. But what I learned from the sports industry, not the business side of the industry, what the actual players and coaches on the field or the court or the ice are doing, just because you're a great player in whatever sport it is, if I was to say, well, is that person destined to be a great coach? We would almost immediately say, well, no, like it depends. Like sometimes the Michael Jordan doesn't have a very successful post-playing career. Sometimes a role player on that team, Steve Kerr, turns out to be this legendary coach. of the. So an okay player can become a great... But in business, the default setting is promote the best player to be the coach. And I think it gets us in a lot of trouble. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. It gets companies in trouble, teams in trouble. We say we have leadership gaps. Maybe that person wasn't supposed to be in that role. Maybe I wasn't supposed to. The reason I succeeded once I got promoted from quote unquote player to coach and from sales to sales manager, it was because I geeked out on the people side of the business not the production or performance side of the but business. But what prepared you for that? Did you read a lot of books? Did you have great mentors? Was it all? I don't know. It's actually a very personal story that I'll share with you right now. And it, it really opened my eyes to, is this the type of impact that I want to have in the world? And is leadership a thing for me? Because I never thought that that was in my future. Um, but, you know, I think we all have a hero. And for me, that hero is my dad. And I lost my hero at 19 years old. So by trade, he was a continuation school teacher. He taught in traditional schools, lands at a continuation, found he could make a greater impact there, help more people, help more lives. So that's what he poured himself into. And years after he passes, I was told things from former students when I would run into them in a barbershop or in the streets in the neighborhood that he taught at, that my dad was the first person that ever believed in them. My dad gave him a reason to think that tomorrow was worth it because these kids had been given up on and right. they were on a path to potentially become a statistic on the street and that's where he found more purpose and impact. And it was moments like those conversations with his former students that I never thought I would be a teacher, but I said, that's how I wanna impact lives. I wanna help people in that way. I wanna pour belief into them so that they can believe in themselves. And now, like you said, with your dental journey, my journey, it's now easy to reverse engineer and say, well, he chose a classroom, then I chose a boardroom, now I choose a stage, but the impact is all the same. I'm just here on a mission to leave people better than I found them. Right. And so when I started to learn what my dad did, and it was right around the same time that his former students had this impact on me, I had gotten the promotion to become a sales manager, not knowing if it was what I was supposed to be doing. I just default said yes. When they offer you the promotion, you don't turn it down, especially in the sports industry. Right. That's a red flag. So I said yes. 
but the reason that I actually started to become great at it is because I believed in why I was doing it. And I didn't make it about the production. I made it about pouring myself into the people that I led. And so my mentor was the spirit of my dad. And cool. that was really what fueled me. Later on, I started to do all the traditional stuff of reading the books and the podcasts and the, watching shows like this. That hit me a little later in my career. My earliest stage was like, my measurement of success is, I want to make my dad proud. So you did that mm -hmm. and you were now training people, and, but you kept climbing in the company what was the next and the next and the then next? i leave la yeah so you know the the good side of sports is it's super sexy super awesome and who wouldn't want to do it the bad side is it takes a long time to grow unless you change places so when i hit a ceiling at the clippers and i was like well my boss probably isn't going to leave for at least a few years maybe longer and I, at the time i was pretty impatient i just wanted to grow like yesterday and so i left and uh, I went to New Orleans. It was a director of sales role. Really interesting chapter where uh, we almost lost the team to permanent relocation because, again, kind of like the Clippers backstory, we were the least economically viable franchise in the entire right. NBA. We had this ultimatum of go from last in the league in season tickets to top in the league in season tickets. Otherwise, it's not worth having a team in New Orleans. And that's the pressure that the league commissioner put on us. So he sent his best leaders and uh, culture champions from New York to come down and they helped us for about a year. I befriended them and that will come back to the rest of my story. We end up achieving the mark that he said. We had a lot of resources, a lot of support, a lot of help. But a couple things that came out of my time in New Orleans. One is, tell me you love me, tell me you hate me, but don't tell me you don't care because I can't change care, I can't make you care. Right. And in a place where they didn't care about basketball as much, we had to figure out what that hot button, coming back to sales, I think it comes back to, well, we take tremendous pride, civic pride in being a New Orleanian, we have an identity. And me in LA, like I wasn't used to this thing called identity, we're just a melting pot here. Over there, it's not a melting pot, there's an identity. So we drilled into the identity to leverage that into civic pride, which created a movement, which created this campaign, which created the result. The second insight, a lot of my fellow leaders, when this army from New York came down, some fellow leaders of mine felt threatened. They felt like, oh, they're here to do our job, they're here to replace us, they're here to tell us what to do because we weren't cutting it. So their ego got bruised. Mine didn't. I looked at them as, well, these are potential partners. These are potential friends. I saw that immediately. I'm like, they're the best of the best. They're reporting straight into the commissioner. Why wouldn't I want them to mentor me? And so befriended them authentically, did the dinners, all the stuff over a year, year and a half. And I kid you not, Dr. Bill, I went from New Orleans to Sacramento, New Jersey, New York, and eventually the Bay. Every single one of those things. There's two types of interviews in the world. There's a cold interview where you literally got to earn everything. And then there's those ones where you, you have a connection and they say, don't throw up on yourself. Well, my cold interviews happened to break into sports, to get into LA, to go to New Orleans. That was cold. But then it was that group of people from New York that came down in New Orleans, and there were three individuals in particular. One that said, come with me to Sacramento. The same one ends up going to New York. A different one ends up going to and San Francisco. And these were all to basically sell. Elevated roles. Selling, yeah. but selling tickets. 
and eventually suites and eventually sponsorships. So eventually, who's making the phone call to Levi's to become Levi's Stadium, as an example. Right. But that's the most senior level of sales. Yes, but it's always kind of in this revenue generating sales capacity and one role is more senior than the other. So it's director to vice president, senior vice president. Go, my job in New York was overseeing revenue for the Super Bowl, first time in New York. All of a sudden you got to shatter a revenue record because it's New York and we got to go big. All of these jobs were because of the relationships built and people trusting me. Just, I always say, I took tremendous pride in how I showed up in the unseen hours. Okay. That was something that I was always trained is that classic of you are who you are behind closed doors or you are who you are in tough times. I call that the unseen hours. I think the things that we do in the unseen hours. Right. And from all those sales positions, tell me what you're doing right now. Now I'm speaking all over the world about it. And now teaching. I'm, now I'm teaching the insights, some of which we've talked about today, and of course it goes way beyond that. But some of these things are foundational principles that I believe apply to every single person in the world. You know, who, who doesn't need to show up better in the unseen hours? Who doesn't need to control the controllables? Who doesn't need that underdog mentality? This to me is like a unit. I don't care if you're in high school, right. college, or you're a CEO. And so now I'm a keynote speaker, a best-selling author. Now I've got a thriving consultancy on basically on-stage impact leads to off-stage impact. So if companies and teams want support post-stage, they bring me in, work with our leaders, work with our culture. That's where you named off all those clients. That's right. the type of work that I do. So if I'm you know, a student in, in college right now and I want to break in the sports, does this program still exist, this eight-week program? Or like, what do I do? It does. And there's also websites that I, I think a, a nice catch-all, teamworkonline.com is a great, and that's not just a plug, but it's more just visibility into the dream job. But here's the thing. I want to be very critical about this. Being a sports fan does not qualify you to work in sports. Just because you love sports center doesn't mean you should work in sports. You actually have to have a passion for what the job is because the industry, the honeymoon effect will wear off. After six, 12, 18, 24 months, if you're in accounting or you're in marketing or you're in sales or you're in operations, a job is a job is a job. It just has a very sexy book cover. So my recommendation is if you are a sports fan, get in line because there's thousands of people applying saying, well, I used to be an athlete and I, that's not enough. You actually have it. to want the job. Yeah, I get it. But it's also a lot more appealing and a lot easier 100%. to sell something you love than something you hate. Well, I would say this. Heck yes to what you just said. Um, the two sacrifices of working in sports, because there's a long line of people that want to do it, you'll make less money and you'll work more hours. It's not a great combination. So the trade-off is because of the love you have for it, it has to supersede the, yeah, the trade Yeah, but you know what? I, I think, you know, a lot of jobs today, you really have to, you know, make that sacrifice and realize you're just paying your dues. I mean, all these young kids that want to go into, like, marketing and advertising, they get paid nothing, yeah. right? But the experience is so incredibly valuable. And if you can really work hard and master that, you know, later on, there's a big payoff, it, you know, and I don't think today's generation is really that in tune with delayed gratification. 
They want <laughs> instant results, and, and I get it. You know, I mean, they see a lot of these, you know, dummies who are, you know, influencers making hundreds of millions of dollars, and these people, like, have no skill, no talent. No, they just kind of hit the right button at the right time and exploded. But, you know, I think that I think that you're right. I think, you know, you have to work harder than anybody else. You have to pay your dues. You have to, you know, be open to learning. And, you know, sometimes it's 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 yeah. the slow road to success that pays off, too. Yeah, this whole like social media culture of 10x your life and like people strike lightning in a bottle. One, I'm not sure I believe most of it. One and two, there is no overnight success story. You see that restaurant that blew up and like I saw a thing on Shake Shack a couple years ago about like, oh, the overnight success. And then they interview the owner. He's like, no, dude, I've been doing this for 13 years. You just found out no. who I was. Right. But I think the insight here to unpack for everybody from a mentoring perspective is delayed gratification is the only way to have sustained not only performance, but happiness and joy and fulfillment and all this stuff because I've taken three pay cuts in my life and I'll, I'll quickly unpack each and it all ties back to what you just said. One is leaving six figures to make $7 an hour. Okay, my break in a sports, big, big pay cut. My second was going from a high-flying seller making a lot of commission to a sales manager where now was, literally I probably made a third of the money as a manager than mm. I did at the peak of sales. So that's my second pay cut. My third was collecting a paycheck every two weeks of my career for about 15, 16 years, and then betting on myself and becoming an entrepreneur to start my speaking business and thought leadership career. Well, all of a sudden the postman doesn't show up. There's no direct deposit every two weeks. You go from hundreds of thousands of dollars to zero guaranteed, and it's only hope, belief, optimism, and a vision going forward. And each one of those, it didn't flinch. I was like, well, of course, if I want to break into a dream industry, I'll delay my gratification. I'll delay the money. I'll delay all that. Of course, if I want to lead people and impact them and you know make my dad proud, of course, I want to be a manager. And then the last part was, oh my gosh, my strongest core values impact. And when I started to assess, can I create more impact inside of the walls of the sports industry or beyond, I had to go. I had to. So with all of those came sacrifice, finance and otherwise, but when you have a deeper burn and reason for it, it's always the right decision. It makes sense. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. We have a few minutes left. Let's talk about better decisions faster because I know this is launching Absolutely. really quickly. Yeah. This is really the 2.0 of everything I've been talking about of folks that play offense versus defense. I mentioned earlier folks that are highly decisive, folks that are very comfortable with imperfect action. And this is really a playbook for how to step into the most critical forks in the road of life with unshakable confidence. Wow, that's awesome. I can't wait to read it. Paul, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Dr. Bill. If students want to get a hold of you, what's the best way? Yeah, everything and anything is on my website, paulepsteinspeaks.com. That's the best place. You'll find all my contact details there. And then again, you can find it on Amazon, Better Decisions Faster. Last thing, a gift for everybody. On my website, you'll see a confidence quiz. It's a free gift from me to everybody in the LEAP community. In less than five minutes, you can walk away knowing your confidence score of one to 100. And when you get your results emailed, you'll also receive 12 keys on how you not only build your confidence, but you sustain it. That's awesome. Thank you so much. All right, Dr. Bill, over and out. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.